In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day. We ask for your blessing. We ask, O Lord, that you be with us and you be with our country this night during these elections, and that your will be done, O Lord, in all things, and that we trust in you, O Lord, to, come, to, to produce, O Lord, the outcome that is right for all of us. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray, thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Uh, good evening, everybody. Um, I know today is a very uh, monumental evening with the elections going on. So um, I will try to go uh, maybe a little shorter uh, than normal, just so that everybody, I'm sure, is anxious to see like what the results are of the election, election watching. Maybe you're actually watching the election as you are listening to this. So um, so let's uh, thank you, everybody, for, for joining us this evening. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. First question that we have tonight is, the Protestant Church uses the verse in 1 Peter 2.9, and interprets it as though it means that there is no more priesthood in the New Testament. Is that true? Also, they often say that everything that was practiced in the Old Testament, such as the use of incense, etc., can no longer be valid in the New Testament. So um, in this verse, in 1 Peter 2.9, St. Peter, he speaks about the priesthood of all believers, the royal priesthood is what he calls it. And so um, those are in the Protestant church, um, refer to this verse and say, that the scripture speaks about the priesthood of believers, meaning that everyone is a priest, right? In the New Testament, we know that in the Old Testament, there was the priesthood of Levi, the Levitical priesthood. This is the tribe that God had appointed to serve as his priests. Um, and in the New Testament, we hear about this priesthood of believers. So um, the question then is, what is this priesthood of believers? Um, how is, what is the, the, you know, the difference? What is distinguishing this priesthood of believers from um, the New Testament priesthood itself, okay? And so I'm going to read some verses to help us to understand this, okay? Uh, King David in Psalm uh, 141, he says, let my prayer be set before you as incense, the lifting up of my hands as an evening sacrifice, okay? The question was also asking about the use of incense and so on. So um, here in this Psalm, uh, King David is speaking about how his prayer itself is like incense rising up to God, and it is a sacrifice. Just as in the Old Testament, they would offer sacrifices, um, like bloody sacrifices of animals. So also King David is saying that his prayer that he's offering up to God is a sacrifice, okay? Also in Psalm 116, it says, I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving, okay? This was a sacrifice, all right? When we give of ourselves to God, when we give of our time to God, when we give of, of anything that is ours to God, this, sac this is a sacrifice, including prayer itself, okay? So King David, he was not a priest, right? Um, he was not of the sons of Aaron for him to be uh, among the Levitical priesthood, okay? But his worship of God is considered like a spiritual incense and a spiritual sacrifice, right? And this is what the spiritual priesthood of all believers means, when St. Peter is speaking about this in this verse, right? Even St. Paul, he describes um, a gift that he received from the Philippians, right? 
And he described this gift in Philippians 4, verse 18, as a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Okay? And St. Paul also says in Romans 12, verse 1, he says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Okay? We also read in Hebrews 13, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name, but do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Okay? So all these verses are pointing to the idea that what? That the, the role of, of giving sacrifice, which is what the priesthood is, the priesthood is offering a sacrifice, right, to God. Uh, the, the New Testament priesthood, we are the priest is praying and offering the sacrifice, right, the sacrifice of the Eucharist on behalf of himself and of all the people, right? And, and in this sense, this is the priesthood, okay? Even in the book of Revelation, okay, when Christ uh, is speaking about uh, in, in Revelation chapter 1, he says what? He has made us kings and priests, right? He has made us to be kings and priests. So we are not literally kings, right? When, when, when Christ says that we have become kings, what does he mean? He doesn't mean that we have literally become kings with crowns on our, on our head and th uh, thrones to sit on, right? We are not kings in that sense, but we are kings in a spiritual sense because we have become inheritors. We have inherited, right, the, the royalty because we have become um, heirs uh, of, of God, right? We have become heirs of God. We have become children of God. So we have become like princes and princesses. We have become kings and queens because we are now the children of the king just as the, the, the sons and daughters of the king inherit from the king, right? We also inherit. So in that sense, we are kings in a spiritual sense, right? So this spiritual priesthood, okay, that is, that is given for all believers, this spiritual priesthood, which is the offering of ourselves as a sacrifice to God, this spiritual priesthood, which is spoken about in the Old Testament, spoken about in the New Testament, spoken about in the prophecy of Revelation, this spiritual priesthood is not the same thing as the New Testament priesthood, right? It is not the same thing as the, the literal priesthood that is according to the order of Melchizedek, okay? Um, so this verse, when, when St. Peter is speaking about this royal pre, uh, priesthood, okay? Um, so, so it's important for us to understand this distinction. It's very clear in um, the book of Acts how there were certain people who were set apart and, and uh, even before that, when Christ breathes the gift of the Holy Spirit into the apostles for the gift of priesthood, that this was a gift that was specific and set apart for them, right? And that all of those who came after the apostles who were ordained by the laying of hands, that was a specific gift, a specific gift given to them. Actually, when St. Paul speaks about the gifts, right? One of the gifts is the gift of, of priesthood, right? God does not give that gift to everyone, just like God does not give any gift necessarily to any person. Each person, God gives gifts according to his, uh, his good pleasure, okay? So this is what we mean when we say um, the distinction between the New Testament priesthood and the priesthood of all believers mentioned in 1 Peter 2, verse 9. When it comes to the, the practice, uh, like the, the liturgical practice, let's say, of using incense, for instance, this, again, is something that was done in the Old Testament, right? And it's done in heaven. Right. So so when you say, well, it's no longer valid in the New Testament, 
Well, if it was done in the Old Testament, meaning when God instituted the prayers in the tabernacle in the temple, he instituted it with incense. When the prophet saw visions, like Isaiah the prophet, when he saw visions, he saw visions including incense. When we see the prophecy of the book of Revelation, which speaks about heaven and the things happening in heaven, we speak about how there are 24 priests around the throne of God, each one with a bowl of incense and offering incense to Christ, right? So if you see incense in the past, you see incense in the future, you see incense on earth, you see incense in heaven, why would there be a period of time, which is the period of the New Testament, where suddenly incense is not valid and is not used, right? This is why from the very beginning of the church uh, of the New Testament, we see that incense is used, right? Incense is used. King David speaks about it, right? Like that our prayers, it's like a lifting up uh, of our prayers to God is this incense. Even um, in the church, whenever the priest is going around and doing a procession in the church with the censer, it is as though he is like collecting the prayers of the people, right? Which is why as the priest is going around in this procession, the people should be confessing their sins. The people should be praying to God. And then when he goes back to the altar, he senses with the censer over the altar and that incense that rises up to heaven is as the priest is offering the prayers of the people up to God, right? And, and this, is, this is one of the many uh, symbols of the incense, um, but clearly incense, God commanded us to use the incense all throughout history from the very beginning and, and, and that we will even find in heaven that incense is used. Number two, what are the proper boundaries that we should have in mind when we deal with people of the opposite sex? So we would be able to guard our hearts and not allow ourselves to get attached to the wrong people. Um, a mistake a lot of times that young people make, um, and, and sometimes not so young people as well, um, is how do we deal with people of the opposite sex? Um, and, and this really um, has to do a lot with the way that we see relationships. Like how do we understand relationships? What is the purpose of relationships? right? You can have relationships that are friendships, you know, obviously. And then there are relationships that are more than friendships, right? There are relationships that are more intimate. There are relationships with the opposite sex, um, which, which are different than the relationship that you might have with someone of the same sex, right? And God intended this, intended this to be so, right? God intended that a man would leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two would become one flesh. This means that the, 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 the capacity of intimacy and the way that men and women interact with each other, there is some unique aspect to it that is different than when two men interact or when two women interact, right? As, a, as like the filial friendship um, between men with each other and women with each other is, is not the same as the relationship between the man and the woman, okay? Even those people who are men and women that have filial friendships with each other and have casual friendships like a nothing more, there is a, a greater potential for temptation. There is a greater potential for intimacy in that because God made us to be compatible in this way for the purpose of marriage, right? This is why, you know, whenever I hear from either a guy or a girl saying, well, I'm very close friends with this person. Let's say a guy comes and tells me, um, I'm very close friends with this girl. We talk on the phone for hours every day. Um, we spend so much time together. We share all these intimate things together. Okay. But number one, these people are not necessarily ready for marriage or they're not pursuing marriage at the time or, you know, whatever the case might be. Well, this is a problem, right? Because 
we cannot control this uh, desire that's inside of us that can make us to desire to pursue a more intimate relationship with someone of the opposite sex, because this is the way we were made. We were made this way. We were made such that we have this capacity for deeper intimacy with someone of the opposite sex, whether it be emotional or, or physical or in whatever way, okay? So, so when we are talking about how do we interact with people of the opposite sex, people who we are not looking for necessarily any intimate relationship with them, we have to be mindful that things can quickly turn into something unexpected or undesirable with them because the way that God made us to be. So we should always be guarded in the way that we deal with those of the opposite sex more than how we would be with those of the same sex. Very simple example of that is, should we be alone together? Should a man and a woman be alone together, let's say in a house, okay? Or in an apartment or whatever, right? Should they be or in a room? Should they be alone together, right? Well, um, even when you have two people that are very mature people and, and, and Christian people and, 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 you know, and, and not desiring to do anything wrong, but because of this innate built-in mechanism that God has built into us, there is always the possibility of temptation and there's the possibility of attraction. There's the possibility of growing closer intimately, right, between a man and a woman so that we should be very guarded in the way we allow ourselves to interact with one another, okay? So, for instance, even when you have people who are pursuing each other for the purpose of marriage, it is not right for them to be in the same place together alone because many people have tried it and many people have fallen, right? Many people who, um, you know, are courting, with one, are courting one another, um, eventually to be engaged and eventually to be married, but when they prematurely start spending a lot of time together alone um, in, 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 in private places, um, it's, it's a very strong temptation and it's very possible for people to fall. So I always tell people, don't do it. Like, don't, don't do it because you are tempting your, your, your own nature, right? You do not control yourself as much as you think. When Joseph the righteous was in the house of Potiphar, okay, and Potiphar's wife began to um, allure him, began to come on to him, right? What did Joseph do? He ran. Like, he, he ran and he even left his garment behind as he was running. Like, to that extent, he wanted to flee the temptation because he didn't trust himself. And the problem that we have is that we trust ourselves too much. We, we trust that because I know the right thing to do, then I will be able to practice the right thing. Because I know the right thing, that means I'm going to do the right thing. And that's, that's a fallacy, right? We, we don't take into account our own weakness when we do that, right? I might know all the commandments. I might know all the right answers. I might know everything, right? But that is, doesn't mean that I'm able to do those things, right? In the moment of temptation, how quickly is it for us to fall, right? So when it comes to dealing with people of the opposite sex, there's certain things that we should keep in mind. Like number one, um, choose your friends wisely, right? Choose someone who is going to be a good friend for the right reasons, okay? For, for Christian reason, reasons, not for any other reason. Um, try to uh, meet in groups. Don't, don't have, you know, one-on-one -on -one meetings in private. Try to meet more in groups. Don't spend too much time with one individual person, okay? Because that's how this greater intimacy begins. Now, if, if that's what I'm looking for, if I'm pursuing marriage and this person is a good candidate for marriage and is also pursuing the same thing, that's okay. Having the longer conversations and, and sharing more and all that, that is, 
the stepping stone for something in that direction. But if that's not what I'm looking for, and that's not what the other person is looking for, and or we are not ready for such a relationship, then don't try to um, ignite that when it's not going to go anywhere, right? Because that is going to cause a problem, right? And many people fall into that. Um, be aware of the signals you are sending. Again, because of this sensitivity um, that we have to the opposite sex, it's very easy for me to interpret the actions, the words of another person um, in, a, in a way that maybe they aren't intending to send those signals, right? But I interpret them this way. So we should be careful of what, what signals we are sending because some people are going to be very easily deceived, not even intentionally, by maybe signals that I'm sending through the things that I say, through the amount of time that I spend, through the things that I share, through all these things that is not appropriate, okay? Um, we should be aware of our own emotions. Like if I begin to feel toward a person um, that I'm developing strong feelings for them and this relationship is not appropriate for whatever reason, okay? Then I need to take a step back from it. Like I can't allow myself to be carried away with it and fall into something that then I'm trapped by my emotions, by my desires, um, and then I'm put in a situation that I can't escape from it, okay? So this is, this is dangerous, okay? Even if I'm in a committed relationship, even if we are engaged, right? There's certain things I need to refrain from. Like I said, don't spend time alone together. Avoid physical contact. This is something that people, you know, like when they're engaged, maybe they hug each other, maybe they even wanna kiss and stuff like that. That, that is the, the road to disaster. That is the road to disaster. Don't think that because you're able to control yourself one time, right, or two times, that you're going to be able to control yourself forever, right? There, there, you don't, don't look at yourself and think, uh, yeah, I'm strong enough for this, okay? Um, if we are pursuing someone, right, don't keep it a secret, right? Involve your father of confession, involve your parents let other people be aware of what you're doing and don't make it a secret if you make it a secret again this this darkness this this hiding is the place where temptation can thrive but if i make all of these feelings that i have known if i make my desire known to um you know the people in authority over me and they are aware of it and they consent and they and they approve right then then it's going to be much better um, and then finally, as I mentioned, everything should be for the purpose of marriage. I, I'm not I'm not just getting into relationships to have fun because I enjoy doing it. And then I have maybe several relationships over the course of my life for no purpose other than I just want to have fun in the moment, right? The, the reason we should be in a, in a relationship is for the desire of finding someone that we want to spend our life with according to God's will. And if I pursue that and it doesn't work, fine. And then I maybe try to meet someone else for that purpose, but not just to have relationships, not just to feel good because I'm in a relationship, um, which nowadays it's like people expect that this is what everyone has to be in a relationship. That's not the reason to be in a relationship, just because everyone is in one. You know, people that go through that, actually they go through a lot of pain and destruction in their life um, that we want to avoid. You know, we want to focus on who is the person God has prepared for me to find this person and to pursue that person. Number three, in the book, The Life of Anthony Abba Athanasius, it's uh, by Abba Athanasius, it says, then if he, Abba Anthony, heard of a good man anywhere, like the prudent bee, he went forth and sought him, 
nor turned back to his place until he had seen him. And he returned, having got from the good man, as it were, supplies for his journey in the way of virtue. How can we apply the same principle as St. Anthony in our spiritual life? This is important because we realize that God teaches us a lot of important lessons through different people, right? And, you know, many of us, we, we look to certain people and we say, wow, this person has really a lot of patience. This person is very generous. This person is very kind. And when you look at the lives of the saints, the saints are not all the same, you know, and that's one of the beautiful things about learning about the saints is that the saints are different, right? One saint, he pursues righteousness. He pursues his relationship with God through silence, right? Another one pursues it through preaching, right? Another one pursues it through giving and charity. Another one pursues it through poverty. Another one pursues it through obedience and asceticism, right? Everyone can pursue righteousness through different means, can pursue a relationship with God, can worship God through different means. And we learn from each of them. You know, we, we learn from each of them. Each one is different and God gives to each one different gifts. So from the person who is very patient, we can learn from them to be patient. We can look at their example. And every time maybe I struggle with patience, I remember this person and I remember their example. I remember how they responded in certain situations. And I say, you know what? I'm going to try to learn from them to be patient, right? Another person is so charitable that they'll give even beyond, you know, their ability and they do it cheerfully. And so maybe it's not that I'm trying to copy exactly what they're doing, but I learn. I learn how, look how God was sustaining that person even though they were giving so much of what they had and they were still successful, they were still prosperous. God still provided for them everything that they needed, you know? Another person lived very ascetically, right? And we learn from them how to fast with sincerity. We learn from, from them how to like really focus on dedicating our time, our life, sacrificing to God. So each of these people that God places in our life is there, not so that we can copy exactly what they're doing, but we learn different virtues from them. And this is what here St. Anthony was doing. Every time he heard about a person who was excelling in some virtue, St. Athanasius says about him that he's like a bee, like a bee who's flying around and taking the nectar from all of these different flowers in the garden. He would find some nectar from this flower. He would go to another flower finding nectar and so on. And so St. Anthony, he would go from, from, from person to person, extracting from them lessons about how to live, right? And so this is important for us. We see God places in our lives people to learn from. And actually, a lot of times the people that we learn from are not even, um, are not even Christians, right? We learn from so many things. Actually, like give you an example, maybe it's difficult to talk about. We actually learn from the devil, right? Um, if, you, if you think about like when Christ is speaking about um, when he was being accused of casting out demons through the power of the devil, right? And Christ said about the devil, well, if a kingdom is divided against itself, it cannot stand. And if you really think about the kingdom of the devil, right? There is no civil war going on with the kingdom of the devil. Like all the demons are like in agreement about what their goal is, what their mission is, what they need to be doing. They are working in concert with one another. And that's why the devil has been so successful. He's been so successful in tempting mankind and causing us to fall because it's like you don't see like one demon fighting with another demon. You see all the demons fighting against us as human beings, right? So even something like, like it, it doesn't matter where the principle is, right? 
we, we find it. Maybe we see in the lives of certain people that we know, like they're very, very organized. Like they're very good at organization. And maybe there's someone at work, maybe someone who's not even a Christian. And we, we can learn those principles from them. So the wise person is the one who is always a student, right? When we go about our day, we are always learning. We're open to learning. We want to learn. We want to absorb. We want to apply. We want to find what works well and apply it and use it. The arrogant person is the one who thinks they are always the teacher. You know, the one who thinks I'm going to go everywhere and I'm going to teach everybody the truth. I'm going to teach everybody what is right. Everyone should just follow me, imitate me, emulate me. And, and I'm the know-it-all in everything. That is a person who doesn't have a bright future, right? That's a person who is very limited and, and what they're going to achieve because they're not willing to listen. They're not willing to admit they're wrong. They're not willing to admit that other people are excelling and more successful than they are in different areas and learning from them. Instead, they are wanting to prove they are the best, right? So St. Anthony, one of the ways that he learned all of the virtues that he had was because he was able to, to, to uh, observe and, and, and learn from and emulate a lot of the people that God had put in his path. And instead of feeling like he's in competition with those people, because that's something that we do. When I see someone who's excelling, instead of feeling like I need to learn from them, I feel like, oh, I need to compete with them. I need to, I need to one-up them. I need to, to, you know, I want more praise. That, that person is getting praised. I want the praise. But instead, St. Anthony didn't care about the praise. He cared about, I want to learn from these people. And he placed himself humbly at their feet to learn from them, even though he was the father of monasticism, right? Even though he was a miracle worker, even though he was the one who, 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 who was famed and everybody looked to him as being like the most famous ascetic, right? But even he would, would learn from those people who are less famous than him, for who, are, who, are, who are less, you know, high ranking than him, he would learn from them. And so we should also do the same and care about learning these virtues from different people. Number four. In the liturgy, there's a part where the priest says, forgive me for I have sinned. Why does he say that? And why does the congregation reach out to the floor and kiss it? Does it resemble anything? Well, so there is a couple places and actually some of the, so, so one of the very first things actually that the priest says, but he says it silently at the beginning of a prayer. So like in the Matins prayer, right? The Matins prayer, the priest opens up the, the curtain and he says out loud, have mercy on us. O God, the father, the Pontocrator, O Holy Trinity, have mercy on us, right? And, and, and he is, he's opening the curtain. When he steps out, the first thing he does is he prostrates toward the altar, okay? Prostrates toward the altar. And, and as he is prostrating, he actually says silently, we worship you, O Christ, with your good father, for you have come and saved us. So it is like a, a greeting to God. Like we are about to start the prayer, and we are, we are greeting God. God is, uh, the, the priest is saying this silently. Then he turns toward the people, Right? And again, silently, he prostrates. He says, bless me, lo, the repentance, forgive me. Right? What, is he, what does that mean? Okay. Lo, the word lo means behold. Okay. So he's turning to the people and he's, he's asking the, for the blessing of the people to start the prayer. Okay. Behold my repentance, forgive me. So one of the important principles, right, of being in the body of Christ is in order for us to be in one body, then we cannot be divided against one another. We cannot have conflicts with one another. We must show love and mercy to one another. 
And so if I have done something, if me as the priest have done something to offend a person in the congregation, essentially I am asking for uh, their forgiveness for whatever sin I have committed and asking for their permission for me to begin the prayer, okay? Because we are in reconciliation with one another, right? We are at peace with one another. And this is important. This is an important principle in the church that Christ is calling us to be reconciled. You know, when you, when you think about the example that St. Paul gave about the body, right? He says, we, the church, are, as the body of Christ, he compared it to like a human body, like a physical body, right? So when, when you look at the physical body, imagine that you have in the physical body, let's say you break your arm, okay? You break your arm. So you have your arm now is like limp. It's not able to function. It's not able to work. It's slowing you down. It's not doing what it should be doing, okay? But because we are united, because my body is united, because I love my body, because I love my arms, because I love myself, okay? I don't look at my arm and curse it. I don't look at my arm and say, you, you worthless arm, you know, you're not doing anything good for me. I'm just going to cut you off and leave you because you're not doing anything good for me, right? No, actually the opposite. We care for it even more. We, we wrap it up. We go to the doctor, we treat it, we take medicine, we, we avoid using it for a time until it heals. Like we treat any injured part of the body as though it is so precious because it is precious to us. It's something un, unreplaceable, irreplaceable to us, right? So we only get two arms, you know, like if you lose one, like you're, you're, you're losing something so important. But when it, sadly, when it comes to the body of Christ, how do we treat each other? Do we treat each other the same way? Like when there is a person who is maybe failing, because of some circumstance in their life, when there's a person who is suffering, when there's a person who is, you know, maybe being a difficult, right, because of some situation in their life, how do I look at them? Is my first instinct, this person, we got to kick them out. This person, I can't handle this person. I can't, like, tolerate this person. I wish this person would just go away, right? Or do we, as though we were acting on our own body, we say, how do we serve this person? How do we tend to this person's wounds? How do we make this person, how do we integrate them into the body in the effective way? How do I reconcile with my brother whom has offended me, right? So a huge part of, of the functioning of the body of Christ is that we are united together as one, that we are not divided against each other, that, that we have unity and reconciliation. So this is why when we come to church and we pray, we are praying as the whole body. Yes, we are individuals, but we are not coming just to worship as individuals. We are coming as the body of Christ to worship God. Right. So I can't come to church, whether as a priest, whether as a lay person, a deacon, anybody, I can't come to church and have enmity and have issues with so many people and then expect that we are going to be able to offer our prayer to God in unity and love. Right. Instead, I'm going to be focusing on the people that have hurt me or the conflicts that I have with people and so on. So this is why it's so important for us to be reconciled. Right. Uh, when Christ was speaking about this on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, he says, therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar, go your way, first be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift, right? So he's saying someone is coming to the church and he's ready there to come and take communion. And he has he remembers there in that moment that, um, there is something that my brother has against me. There's some way that I have offended my brother, right? And I haven't reconciled with him. 
Christ is saying, leave, leave the altar, leave your gift there at the altar, go reconcile and then return again. Right? This is why when we take communion, right? What is communion? Communion is not like a like a substance. Communion is communion, is to be in communion with. When we partake of communion, we are being in communion with the Lord and being in communion with the rest of the people, right? So I cannot be in communion with the people if I am in enmity with the people, right? So this is why at the very beginning of the prayer, the, the priest asks for this forgiveness from the people. He does it silently at that point. But then also at the beginning of the prayer of reconciliation, which is the beginning of the liturgy of the faithful, audibly the priest will say, uh, asking the people to forgive him his sin, saying he is a sinner, forgive me, right? For the same reason. It's like we are about to pray the reconciliation prayer, which is the prayer speaking about how we have become reconciled to God and reconciled with one another. So the priest is asking the people again, I, I, you know, I ask that we be reconciled together. I ask that you pray for me, a sinner. I ask that we, you forgive me for any offense that I have committed. Okay, so this is this is very important. When it comes to um, the point about uh, reaching the floor and kissing it, this has to do with the means of that we prostrate. What is prostration? What does it mean to prostrate? Okay. Um, Prostration means that we are kneeling down or we are, we are debasing ourselves by lowering ourselves down to the ground, okay? And there's different ways to do the prostration, but essentially by lowering myself to the ground, it's like I am um, reminding myself of my humble state, reminding myself that I came from the dust of the earth. So I'm like touching the earth. I'm reminding myself that I am of the earth, right? That I am a low, lowly state. And when I do a prostration before God, right, I can do it for more than one reason. I'll, I'll explain that in a second. Um, and when I do a prostration before people, right, it's like in showing honor to that person or humbling myself before that person for the sake of asking for their forgiveness, maybe for a sin that I committed against them. Okay, what are some examples of prostration, right? Like I'm going to just mention a few verses here speaking about prostration in the Bible. In Numbers 20, verse 6, it says, so Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and they fell on their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them, right? Moses and Aaron, like in, in worship of God, in, in awe and reverence before God, they fall on their faces, right? That is prostration. First Chronicles 29, it says, then David said to all the assembly, now bless the Lord your God. So all the assembly blessed the Lord of the God of their fathers and bowed their heads and prostrated themselves before the Lord and the king. Again, this is a form of worship. We are prostrating to worship the Lord. Okay. In Revelation 7, all the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God. Again, even the angels are prostrating before, before God. Okay. So there's different reasons that we can do prostrations. Some of the prostrations are done for the purpose of worship. If in the in the liturgy, in the institution narrative, okay, uh, we the deacon says, worship God in fear and trembling. And in that moment, all the people are bowing down and worshiping God, right? So this is a prostration for worship. There's also a, prost uh, a prostration for repentance. For instance, uh, when it's during the fast, uh, like the great fast, for instance, and we are prostrating many times in the liturgy, or when I'm asking for God's mercy, even in my own home, and I'm doing prostrations, right? 
this is a prostration asking for repentance. It's like me demonstrating my humility before God, asking God to forgive me of my sins and so on. Okay. Um, also, it could be for just showing reverence. Like, for instance, when I'm prostrate in front of the bishop, right? The bishop is an icon of Christ. Okay. We don't worship the bishop because the bishop is a man, but he represents Christ in the church. So when we see the bishop, okay, we prostrate before him um, as, a, as, a, as a sign of our acknowledgement of who the bishop is, right? The bishop is the icon of Christ. We, he represents Christ, and we, we show reverence to his position. We so, show reverence to what he represents, okay? So there's different ways to prostrate. The, 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 the full prostration, which is like, the, 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 like the, the official way to do the prostration, is that you kneel on the ground, and then you put your forehead to the ground, okay? That is a full prostration. Again, you're, you're associating yourself with the earth, the humility of lowering yourself down, okay? Um, but there are times where it's just, it's not practical to do the full prostration because, you know, it could be like we're, we're meeting someone quickly. Um, there's not time to do that. Actually, a funny story. One time uh, before I was, uh, uh, or no, no, it was after I was a priest. So uh, after I was a priest, I went out to lunch with some of my coworkers that I, my, my previous coworkers that I had with a job before I became a priest. And so we were there um, on the sidewalk waiting for some other people to arrive. And I was talking with them, you know, and this was the first time they had seen me as a priest. And of course, for them, it's very strange, you know, seeing I have a beard, I'm wearing a black robe and so on. And so as I was standing there talking to them, suddenly this man, stranger, who's on the sidewalk, um, he came he kneeled on the ground. He did a full prostration on the ground in front of me. He kissed my hand and he just kept walking. Like he didn't even stop. He just, that was just, that was it. So of course they thought like, this is my normal life. Like everywhere I go, like people are just like, you know, prostrating on the ground, kissing my hand or something. Um, he was probably Eastern Orthodox and he might've actually thought that I was a bishop. I'm not sure. Um, but, uh, but, but that's, that's, um, that's, that's a kind of prostration, like the full prostration. Okay. Um, sometimes when there's not enough time to do that, you'll see that um, we'll just touch the ground, which is kind of like a half prostration, if you want to say. It's just like a, a, a movement that represents the same thing as humbling ourselves, lowering ourselves to the ground, but it's not like the full prostration going down. Um, some people will do the full prostration. Some people will just touch the ground, uh, you know, or a combination of the two. It really kind of depends on the situation, right? Um, so this is, this, is why, uh, this is why the priest... Ask for the prayers of the people, ask for the forgiveness of the people. This is why the prostrations are done um, and, and why it's done by touching the ground. Okay. Number five, does the church accept new household products, furniture, kitchen tools, etc.? cetera? Um, every church has different needs, right? And so depending on the needs, you can ask the priest, you know, what is needed. And if you have something that you want to donate that is needed, um, then they can tell you. Um, also, if the church itself doesn't need it, there are charitable organizations that you can sometimes donate to. Like in our diocese, we have an organization called HOPE, H-O-P-E. Um, if you want to learn more about it, you can go on their website, hope.suscopts.org. Um, and they have all kinds of very, very good causes around the world, um, all over the world, uh, of, of different people that need things, whether it be money or whether it be like physical items and things like that, um, there's always an opportunity to donate there as well. But definitely talk to 
the priest um, and see what are the needs of the church before you start donating things. Sometimes people in their zeal to donate, they have things they want to donate, but the things that they want to donate are not really needed. And so it kind of becomes a burden because the church doesn't need those things. So let's talk to the priest first, and then you can see if what you want to donate is something that's actually needed. Um, this will be the last question that we cover today. Uh, it says, how do we discard saint pictures? Okay, so if we have these little icons of the saints, uh, and you know, sometimes we collect these things over many years, and we have this big collection of them, and they just kind of take up a lot of space, and we want to get rid of the pictures somehow. Question is, is how do we get rid of the pictures? Um, so some people, so the idea is when we, we really, when we discard anything of the church, that we want to be mindful of what it is that we're discarding. So like, for instance, um, the water that's used in baptism, let's say, right? We, we anoint this water with oil. We pray on the water like the water is holy, like it's water for baptism. And then by the end of the baptism, we want to get rid of the water, right? So what do we do? So number one, there's a special prayer that the priest prays on the water at the end of the baptism, asking God to revert the water back to its previous natural state prior to all of the, you know, prior to the prayers, prior to the uh, anointing with the oil and so on. And then when we uh, discard it, we discard it into the, to the grass, right? We discard it into the grass. We don't, we don't throw it down the drain in the sewage system. It's like a natural way to get rid of the water, right, in nature. Right. So we are mindful of the way we discard something that is holy. Right. So when it comes to the pictures of the saints. OK. So because they have the image of a saint or an, the image of Christ or the image of an angel. Right. If you just take those pictures and you throw them in the trash, it just kind of doesn't feel right. It feels like, you know, you're like desecrating the picture. Right. Um, so so a lot of times what people will do is they'll tear them up into little pieces so there's no, so you don't see the image anymore. Like it's not recognizable anymore as the image of those saints. So that when you throw them away, it doesn't feel like you're, you're really desecrating the picture of the saint. This is, this is, I know what some people do. Um, you know, that's what I've heard of to do in this case. Okay. Um, I think this is a good stopping point for today. Uh, thank you everybody for joining. Uh, let's just conclude in a prayer. Name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Thank you, O Lord, for this day. We ask for your blessing in all things. Guide us, O Lord, as a church, as a country, in every way, O Lord, do according to your will in our lives. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Have a great night.